John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 637.EZ1704, certificate number 38938, induced demand. What's happening on the Metropolitan Boulevard is the traffic is still moving much better than average. It fizzies uh, up a little bit around the Auto Route Verge area, but even there it doesn't slow down much. From one end to the other in both directions, good news. Today is the very first day that I drove here to our uh, recording bunker through Seattle's brand spanking new toll tunnel. Oh, that's right. It costs that's, money now to go through the tunnel that they kind of, um, they, they gave us a little taste for a few months of, of not charging. It's pretty smart. Yeah. It's like the, uh, well, gateway drug, right? It's like standing outside of school and they're like, Hey kids, you want this free tunnel? Yeah. <laughs> and how was it? Um, was it less congested as a result of now costing $2? It was a buck twenty-five this oh, morning. 25. It's variable, so outside of rush hour, it's cheap. This Do you is, have this the is little the, good to go uh, bleeper? In your I, car? I had to buy a little sticker. Yeah. I'm not clear on how it works. You it, know, they have. Uh, you, you put a sticker behind your rearview mirror, and uh, I guess a, a surveillance camera can yeah, see your sticker. They have the cameras, and they they're, they're it's a little barcode or something. I don't know. What is it, it is. just seeing it visually with its little retinas? Like, if I were in the camera, could I tell everybody's uh, cars and, and charge them? I bet it has an RFID chip in it. Little, yeah, yeah, it probably does, right? Yeah, I think it probably does. I was going to say infrared, but we don't. It's in, it's all RFID now. Yeah, I don't even know what that is. It just means that somebody can read my credit cards. It's a With refid. Their phone. It's, yeah, it's a refid. That's what frogs say. Yeah, refid. Uh, yeah, that's right. You need to. That's why I keep my wallet uh, wrapped in seven layers of aluminum foil. I have one. I have a, a, a cap too that I wear under my wig. It's going to affect your posture at some point. Having just six inches of aluminum foil in one of your pockets. My wallet has this little flap that says RFID on it. No, it does not. But I don't know what the flap even. Does. What even is this? Oh, it's. Do I have to put that flap over the RFID it's thing? Security theater. Is it? Is it, it is, like, there's no, does this symbolize that the whole wallet has amazing? Maybe. Maybe. Is it like when Superman can't see through lead? Like uh, Lex Luthor's always has to hide his operation behind a. I think that's exactly what it is. Lead Be- paint. Because you're sitting there at the you're at the gas station. You no longer have to put your credit card in because it's just reading the Apple Pay off of your retinas or whatever. Yeah. But the person you can just tell how much you're willing to pay for gas. It reads your brain and it takes that much out of your bank account. The guy in the in the Ford Explorer parked on the other side of the of the pump is has a has some sort of you know electromagnetic no, uh, super it's, ray. It's not even that. He's just got an app on his phone. He has downloaded a 95 cent app that has turned his phone into a roofed stealer. He's the roofed bandit of the Arco station. Yeah, these are really complex and perilous times. I, I feel like it doesn't trouble me only because it hasn't happened to me yet. Oh, nothing bad has happened. You've not had your your identity thefted. Eh, not in a big way. I've had to change credit card numbers a couple times. Because people bought uh, big TVs with them? I guess. Or they, they always buy small things. I'm very confused. I tried to oh. donate to public radio last week. Oh, never do that. <laughs> well, there's my first mistake. <laughs> no, I support the our incredibly well-funded Seattle public radio stations. <laughs> and I just want to pour more money on their huge pile that yeah. they have in the back room. Uh, and it, it wanted me to prove I wasn't a robot just to give a hundred bucks to, Oh yeah. 
Is that a problem? A lot of robots donating to uh, to NPR? Well, you know, half the things I do on the internet now, I have to prove I'm not a robot. But then I'm, I'm, I guess I'm doing some fairly sketchy things on the internet and that I, robots I, would do. I like when it just asks you. I like when it's just like, look, are you a robot? look, are you a robot? Here's a box. If you're a robot, you legally have to tell me by <laughs> checking that box. No robot would know <laughs> to check this box. It's the Asimov's test. I hate the ones that I fail, like... Pick out every traffic light in this picture. And it's like, really? I don't, I can't. And then there's like a second level sometimes. Yeah. Oh, good. I'm on level two of picking out uh, traffic signs. Well, I think you go to level two if you fail. Oh, if is, you're that, like, is that what it means? You... I thought I was just really good in getting to the boss level <laughs> <laughs> of, finding, of finding stop signs. More, find more crosswalks, Ken. Find more crosswalks. <laughs> I, uh, I think the reason why even charities have to do this now is because people with stolen credit card numbers will test the waters by... Oh. giving $50 to a nonprofit. And, and if that, it works. And that's how they know the number works. Oh. And it's just because all these crooks, they just love supporting um, the impartial journalism of, uh, sure, of, of public K- radio. K- PLU. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the tunnel was great. Um, it, the tunnel was 10 minutes cheaper, or 10 minutes cheaper, 10 minutes faster than the freeway. Well, now listen, 10 minutes faster is 10 minutes cheaper, Ken. Time is money, it is. in my opinion. It is, and your time is worth more money than the average bear. Well, sure, I have a huge uh, vault full of uh, of money at my house, gold right. doubloons that I swim through at my house. <laughs> what I need is time, time with my beloved children before yes. they turn 13 and hate me. Time. But uh, you really have to do that equation now because you're thinking, okay, the tunnel's going to cost a buck 25, it's 10 minutes quicker, what would I rather have? Right. I'm not getting 10 more minutes of my life. Do you think your time is worth $20 an hour? But I'm getting the same amount of time. All this time-saving thing is kind of bull. It's just, do I want to spend it staring at my phone uh, on the freeway (laughs) or or at home? (laughs) If I'm stopped behind another car and my eye glances toward Twitter, am I a terrible person? Yes. Maybe. maybe. No, you are. Maybe. I haven't. Uh, How many times have you impeded the flow of traffic, even briefly, because you were focused on something on your phone? Oh, no, I'm good. I'm such a people pleaser that the very first time someone had to tap on their horn because I was looking at my phone at a light, I decided, you know what? I'm never doing that again. Never again. So I'm, I'm still looking at my phone, but I'm nervously like <laughs> glancing up at the light like literally every three you're seconds. You're the first one to go when the light turns because you're like, not me, not me. Are you really good at this, at, yeah. at being a, a non-phone uh, driver? N- no. I'm also bad. I what I try to do is every every week or two I I I um I swear I'm not going to carry my phone with me anymore. I'm going to just use some other technology. The sun to navigate. I'm going to use the sun. I'm going to use my shortwave radio that I carry around <laughs> in a headset. I have a hat. I have a helmet that has two uh, beer cans in it and also a shortwave radio. That's amazing. That, yeah. That's where the coach calls in your signals. Yeah, you got to have that. But I, uh, but I'm, I'm the same. Like if I sit at a at a traffic light, I'm nervously glancing all the time. Not because anyone has ever honked at me, but because I am so infuriated when someone else does it that I don't want to. I don't want to. You've like, got the internal honk of your conscience. I do. I'm just like, do not be that person. Do there's not. a lot. There's a lot more responsibility when you're the first person. Yeah. If you're behind someone, I feel like I have amazing peripheral vision. And maybe everyone in America thinks they have above average they peripheral vision. They clearly do not because it happens to me all the time. Half of them are wrong. Yeah. But I, you know, I feel like if I'm behind somebody and I'm looking at my phone, I can tell when the guy ahead of me's brake lights go off. Yeah. But if you're the first one in line, just, you, you can't see the red-green change out of the corner of your eye. Unless you're lo- – yeah, right. You have to have, you have one to, eye right. on. Or you have to hold your phone up directly in front of the traffic signal like like so <laughs> but then it looks like you're taking a picture of something yeah but that's not that's not really bad i mean if if you if, if it appears that you are monitoring the traffic signals with some app on your phone that makes you even more uh complex and compelling yeah to other drivers. look at this cool guy who's somehow hacking the traffic light yeah what's he doing he knows the riffid he's, he's got, got a back door into the riffid got, do you remember the old and i don't i still don't know if this is 100 percent true but Fire engines and ambulances always purportedly had the power to change traffic lights. And I, and I sometimes, just a week ago, I saw it, I think, happen. Yeah. But who knows if the light is going to turn green anyway. Well, for a long time, when I was in my teens and 20s, the rumor was that if you're coming up on a traffic light and you flash your brights in imitation of a, of a uh, you know, of a sire, of a, of a flashing light of a, Yes. Of an emergency vehicle. Do you have to have red and blue headlights? No, I think it was just flash your headlights and that there are sensors in the traffic lights that will change 
if you flash your brights. And so for a decade, when I was on a, a road at night. Can you give me the date range here? When, when, when was I would this? say between, from 1986 to 1996, mm-hmm. I, if I were the only driver, uh, I would flash my lights at, at a red light. And, and about... I don't know. It seemed like there was a there there was some causality. The light would turn, and how I would, much did you need? Economists would like to know this. How how often did this have to happen to keep you going until oh until Clinton's second term? I think it happened thirty percent of the time, and thirty percent of the time I felt like uh, there it was probably rigged for some other reason, and thirty percent of the time I felt like it was my timing was off. The rest of the time you're like, this one's broken. Yeah, I, but thirty percent of the time I feel like I would uh, the light would change on my behalf, and and that I had a secret hack. In hindsight, it seems unlikely that they were putting light. I mean, light sensors would have existed in, in the late 80s, but would they have been putting them in every traffic signal? Probably not. Although, you know, the, um, I mean, I haven't read every page of the protocols of the elders of Zion, but it might be in there. I did the same thing, but I just, I thought it was a speaker. So I just stuck my head out the window and went, I'm a fire engine. <laughs> turn, turn. I just That's the to, other thing. If you're driving, you just say under your breath, like, turn, come on, come on, turn. damn it, damn it. I had a, I just would do an improv exercise where I would try to like feel more like a fire engine or an ambulance, like uh-huh. just kind of give the impression, maybe carry myself a little method acting posture wise, like an ambulance to yeah. see if I could trick the intersection. The Lee Strasberg method. <laughs> exactly. Uh, if you were an, in, if you were a fire engine, what kind of fire engine would you be? But this is the kind of, uh, you know, when they built that tunnel, they tore down our big waterfront freeway. Our 1940s era viaduct. Uh, earthquake damaged, uh, built on swampy fill viaduct. And it was exactly for earthquake related reasons. They weren't like, what a new vibrant thing we can add to the city. Uh, you know, let's get rid of this awful elevated freeway from the era of awful elevated freeways. No, the thing had to be cracking so badly that. The next quake was going to knock it over. I think the big quake in San Francisco where the Embarcadero Freeway fell down on people and pancaked them uh, was the next day we all drove on the viaduct with a lot of trepidation. Not if you're on the upper one. I'm like, I like my odds. (laughs) Ride it down. (laughs) I definitely thought that many times. Like, I'm just going to ride it right into the bay when when it starts to fall. But uh, but from the time we had our last earthquake in 2001, last big earthquake that really rattled things. And when they finally tore it down, uh, was a period of eighteen years, right? Where yep. we were driving on a on a thing where we had been told visible the next quake. <laughs> it wasn't visible cracks; it was chunks. Chunks were falling out of this thing. And that's not, I'm not an expert on infrastructure. No, but is that not what you want? Chunks falling out of your uh, elevated freeways? Did you go walk? You walked on it right after they closed it. I did. And walking on it was the most terrifying thing. I'd ever done in in the sense that I'd been driving on this thing every day or or uh, many times a week. It had a beautiful view. It had a so you could view. look at the Olympics, you could look at the water, you could take your mind off the possibility of imminent death. But walking on it, you really were stepping over giant missing pieces of this concrete freeway where you could look down forty feet to the ground. <laughs> it was like flying in one of those. Um, one of those Bush airlines in Alaska in the 1980s, there were a lot of, there still are a lot of Bush pilot uh, airlines up there. This is, these are all your, all your similes and metaphors are related to Alaskan Bush pilots. <laughs> there were a lot of. <laughs> Do you know what the Franco-Prussian War was like? <laughs> this one Alaskan Bush pilot I remember. There were a lot of planes, and this is probably still true, but there was, there was less regulation then. A lot of planes that were very old and held together with bailing wire. I remember getting on a plane down to Soldatna from Anchorage one time. And it was a, it was not a small plane. There were 10 passengers on it. And, um, and you could absolutely see, uh, daylight through the floor of the plane in the, in the, in the crack between the door and the, and the fuselage and through multiple places in the plane, you could see daylight. We are all used to being on airplanes that had no insulation and that were very loud, but, but I had never been in one that was so, and it was a this had this was an airline, right? It wasn't just a guy in his plane. But they were not flying at some elevation where they had to pressurize. Oh no, 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 no! Oh, okay. You're just you know they're they're all just puddle jumpers it's, from Anchorage to Soldatna. It's just Gary Airlines. Yeah, <laughs> you know you can get down and just fly 15 feet off the road if you wanted. It's the albatross from the rescuers. It's exactly what it was. You just have to exactly show up and be like, like, we'd like to go rescue the little girl. <laughs> oh, it's pretty windy out there. <laughs> 
I had a I had a roommate in college who had a car that was you know with the floor had rusted through. Yeah, and you could see the maybe we all had this roommate yeah. or drug dealer. I drove across the country in one, <laughs> and you could see the freeway whipping by. And I just remember thinking, you know, we're very close to a Flintstones solution here. Like if that hole gets a little bigger, we can literally do that. <laughs> Um, but one of the solutions when Seattle was tearing down the viaduct for, again, public code collapsing freeway reasons, <laughs> right. uh, was uh, a tunnel, uh, and the city kept voting it down. Multiple billion dollar tunnel. But a bunch of different options were mooted. The city voted no on all of them. And one of the options could have been to just do nothing, to get rid of this main arterial through downtown Seattle. And a lot of the discussion said that this will not be as catastrophic as you think. Now, what were what was your take on that at the time as a voter? I think I voted no on everything. I think maybe one— Here, here. <laughs> That's <laughs> like, the Seattle way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a straight-ticket voter. Nope. The, part, nope. the party of no. Not that one either. <laughs> nope. Sorry, good space guy. Let me tell you about Pete, who loved hockey and always wanted to play in the NHL. Pete played since he was three and begged his mom to let him stay on the ice. Why, some nights he even slept in his hockey skates. Pete practiced and practiced until one day. When he was 47, Pete realized he just wasn't that good. So he threw his skates in the trash. But then he heard how Geico, proud partner of the NHL, could save him money on car insurance. So he switched and saved a bunch. So it all worked out. Uh, the, uh, you know, because I had been convinced by, you know, probably some new urbanist type in the stranger who had told me we can just get rid of this thing. You it, were it, convinced of that. Yeah. It, it, it seemed, I, I liked the fact that it was counterintuitive and I had discovered some new secret that sure. other people who had not read some wired article did not know, Sure, which was that, uh, hack the freeways. You can just, you can just get rid of stuff and it's not as bad as anyone thinks. Well, I, and I think the Embarcadero is the, is the thing that everyone uses to demonstrate. This, yes. Right. They tore that entire freeway down and it was the only thing that connected, uh, 101, the only way to get from 101 to, um, to the major freeways, to the to the Bay Bridge, on paper this was a terrible idea. You're just gonna you're gonna come off the Golden Gate Bridge and have to drive through the streets, think through what, the streets. Think what will happen to downtown. <laughs> you come up. You're very angry through <laughs> the streets where my children play with their toys. The streets of San Francisco where Michael Douglas <laughs> does cop stuff. But they did tear it down and they they rebuilt the Embarcadero as a I you know they they say pedestrian friendly. Have, having been a pedestrian on it many it's, many it's, times, it's very wide. It's not super friendly. I mean, if you try and if you try and run across it going against the light, it's you're basically like really you're on a you're you're on a bombing run through the Death Star. It's Frogger, and that's going to happen on our waterfront as well. Yeah. it's going to be a wide. It's going to be replaced by a wide surface boulevard. A wide boulevard where people are driving faster than than, than probable. Mm-hmm. But but the Embarcadero is nice, and honestly, you don't. It basically Vancouverized San Francisco, is that, right? Is that what they wanted? Well, Vancouver never uh, never had a freeway going into the town. It just had a super wide boulevard that was that where traffic went really fast, but had stoplights. But Vancouver had a had a, 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 a the first lush, which was where you bought soap that looked like food. It's where you buy your bath bombs. And that's exactly what San Francisco wanted. I go up to Canada and I sneak bombs across the border, but they're bath bombs. Balms. Balms? <laughs> Do you have any bombs? Officer, are you saying <laughs> balms with a silent L, like people who say almond? Get out of the car, sir. <laughs> so, so I was very much in favor of tearing down the viaduct. And doing nothing. And doing nothing. Yeah. Leave the streets as they were, build a park in that space, and let the chips fall. Not literally. The chips were falling. The chips before. were already falling. Right. Let that's the, that's let, why you couldn't turn it into a Highline type park because, again, it was going to collapse. Super unsafe. A lot of people wanted it to be a Highline park, and I was I, because I'm on the Seattle Music Commission. Or although I got an email the other day um, that didn't exactly thank me for my service, <laughs> but the email included the line, you know, um, all of our emeritus. Uh, members. Hey. And I was like, am I one of those now? Am I an emeritus? But as a member of the Seattle Music Commission. Possibly emeritus. Uh, we Possibly emeritus. 
we uh, we had a we were very vested in the redevelopment of the waterfront because there are lots of opportunities to build venues and places where musicians can ply their trade. There's a big psychological barrier to building a big elevated freeway through a neighbor through an area. Right. You know, like you'd think it wouldn't change the underlying vibe much to just get rid of a freeway, but it does. It does in a major way. And and uh, so I went to a lot of meetings of the waterfront redevelopment people, and boy, when that idea of turning the elevated freeway into a park came around, you know, some citizen initiative, the waterfront redevelopment people were more opposed to it and more like circle the wagons to make sure this doesn't happen than almost any other aspect of the project. Did they, they, did they know it would be catnip to Seattle voters? Yes. they. they We're going to have a thing like Chelsea. They absolutely felt like this is a thing that if it gets out of hand, people will really want it and it's a terrible idea and we have to stop it. Uh, it was it was a behind the scenes glimpse of how municipal politics sometimes worked around here. But I assume it was a terrible idea for was, structural reasons. If you don't want cars idea. up there during an earthquake, you don't want a bunch of pedestrians and uh, uh, cotton candy vendors either. It was a bad idea, but what they what the reason they didn't like it is that um, Seattle loves to Seattle loves to get a bunch of well meaning people together with a vision, yeah. and the vision that they had for redeveloping the waterfront did not include. A decrepit. We have chosen our old vision. Street, and this the vision was just like no. And once they had the vision, it's not that different from an Old Testament vision. I, I woke <laughs> up, right. and God had given our committee this. We have all seen it, and now we must make it come to pass. Yes, uh, this happened in Seoul, Korea, my my own hometown. <laughs> there was a, could you see daylight through the through the kimchi? The Alaskan uh, bush pilots coming uh, accidentally to Korea. There was a uh, freeway right through, elevated freeway right through the center of downtown, the Chungaechun Freeway, and I think it was the main arterial. 160,000 cars a day pouring into downtown on this thing, and they built it. I think through the only, uh, you know, sometime in the, you know, post Korean War, 70s or 80s, maybe. I think 70s. They had, they had built it in the only stretch where they could, which was where the river used to go through downtown. Uh, so they had covered over a nice stream. And given us in, in its stead a dirty, smelly, no, is, noisy, elevated. This freeway. was the Providence, Rhode Island uh, philosophy of urban development. Whoever the Korean uh, Robert Moses is, <laughs> pave uh, the river exactly. And uh, sometime in the two thousands, you know, the the new urbanist movement, you know, you know, some vision of urban renewal. Daylight the river. Yeah, the they decided we, you know, the stream would be amazing. This could be uh, a park. All we have to do is get rid of the only arterial into downtown Seoul. And they did so. Chunga Chun Freeway, they just tore down. And the last time I was in Seoul, it was like a paradise. Like this part of town I hated to go to now had this beautiful park-lined um, stream kind of babbling its way through the one of the biggest cities in the world with lined with fountains and vendors and public art. And, you know, they had just turned it into Portland or, right. or San Antonio Riverwalk or something for right. for one block of Seoul. Uh, this is a phenomenon called reduced demand where you get rid of a good and once the good is gone, once there's no supply, um, demand drops as well. People decide they don't want it. You see it in, um, there's a movement now to turn a lot of urban thoroughfares into pedestrian streets. Um, you know, they, they turn Broadway through Times Square into a pedestrian street a couple times a year now, I think. And everyone tells them, don't do it. Every other street around there is going to be a disaster. Right. And it isn't because demand is not fixed. It, it varies according to the, the policy changes that surround it. You know, Dallas did the, <clears throat> did the opposite or a different version of it at, that we hear about in Seattle too, which is cover the freeway. Uh, we're, a, we're hearing about this now. Everybody yeah. wants to lid I-5 through Seattle. And Dallas did it. And and uh, what had formerly been a big, gnarly freeway scar through town is now one of these food truck uh, farmers, river walk Farmer's things. market yeah, paradises. Yeah. Everybody's up there just completely like, there's no, we have no big freeways. It's all just what freeway? happy times. I, I You know, I, I would like the freeway scar to be gone. It really... I was thinking about this the other day. I live near a lake in Seattle, and there's stuff just on the other side of the lake that seems to me a whole different neighborhood, inaccessible and inapproachable. And in fact, I could walk there from my house, except for the fact that they put I-5 right through there. 99. No, I'm talking about on the east side of the lake. Uh, when they put I-5, you know, Maple Leaf. Oh, I see. Maple Leaf should be a quick walk from Green Lake. Sure, you know, those, of course. Those neighborhoods should consider Green Lake, a, a, you know, their park destination. But instead, there's a 
you know, there's 10 lanes of freeway through This there. is amazing radio programming for futurelings that live in Tasmania. <laughs> and who never, are like, maple leaf, okay. We, well, we, we should explain <laughs> that this is the one time in human history where people lived in big, unwalkable cities. There was a brief century right. when the invention of the automobile and the artificial cheapness of fossil fuel meant that instead of living and working in a convenient area where everyone knew each other, people decided, here's what's better. Here's what's better. I'm going to live in one place then I'm going to work someplace far away from there, and then I'm going to shop and do all my you know, errands in a third place, which is neither of those. It's some kind of mall in a different suburb. And luckily, I have a metal box that will take me to all these places, and I feel, I feel independent. A metal box that used to be super fun to drive, but now just is another form of total suckage. Because of congestion. Everybody got one of these metal boxes. Apparently, that was unforeseeable. Right. Well, and there are a lot more people than there used to be. There are. And that's one of the things that makes the math and the planning on this super hard. But, um, you know, as early as the 1930s, when when this was beginning, when this, you know, this was not the post-war Levittown boom in suburbs, but, you know, people were starting to be, the, the boom of the automobile meant people could live further away from what they would have considered old neighborhoods and still have an efficient lifestyle and, and uh, you know, streetcars as well, you know, that early transit right. gr- sprawled <laughs> cities in a way that they had not before. There are a lot of uh, neighborhoods in Seattle that were specifically designed around streetcars so that, um, and we think of these now as being very close in neighborhoods that are very <laughs> right. walkable and bikeable. But back then that's where the forest began. Yeah. And, and, and they built, um, they built the, the, the streetcar network, Around the idea that every streetcar stop would be a little neighborhood hub, and um, here's, and, your, here's your grocery, here's, yeah. here's where you do your banking. And, and when I ran for city council, I advocated, um, I advocated for uh, like a, a sort of a rebuild of that of that network. That was not a popular. It turned out program. It turns out they're all they made them all into bike tra- all, bike trails, right? And people are not going to get rid of their bike trails. Well, it's not just that, but. There is a there is a lot of at least in Seattle a lot of resistance to the idea of of um, like the hard infrastructure of rail because people have been convinced that buses can do the same thing that trolleys do except somehow they're flexible because they can you can have a steering wheel and turn them a different way if you want they can respond and and they're cheaper. They aren't over time. Is that true? <clears throat> because buses are because the they require so much. I mean, they, there's a lot more wear on a bus, mm-hmm. right? A trolley just um, the life expectancy of the infrastructure is a lot sort of long lasting than uh, than buses. But also in urban planning, and I hate to be Joe Urbanist here, but what you I don't, think this show is going to be you being <laughs> Joe Urbanist. <laughs> what you don't want in public transit. Um, terms is flexibility. What you want right. is to have development, development happen. Development follows rail yeah. in a way that it does not follow bus lines. And if you have consistent train stops, then you have uh, you have a lot of predictability in terms of, okay, we put density here and density there, and you don't have this crazy sort of amorphous uh, building that happens. But that's the market, John. Uh, See, this is, so this is the core of this debate, is how much planning should there be. Mm-hmm. Um, and as early as the 1930s, when streetcars were allowing urban planners to start thinking about outlying areas and to have visions of massive highways starting to run through their heads. Um, you know, I read the, I read the, the, uh, what's the Robert Caro book about Robert Moses. Is that right? Do they have the same first name? Robert Caro writing about Robert Moses. Does he only write books about people named Robert? Is, is Lyndon Johnson actually named Robert? Robert Lyndon Baines Johnson. And he's a blues musician. <laughs> How? <laughs> how? Uh, um, yeah, no, that's right. They're both named Robert. Yeah. I, I thought I'd screwed up for a His second. His book about Robert E. Lee is fantastic. <laughs> Highly recommended. Uh, I'm waiting for the Robert Redford book. The, in the 1930s, uh, Robert Moses was kind of the, the um, most powerful city planner in New York and therefore in America. And he had no training in any of this stuff. But um, Boy, you wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> His legacy has been complicated by the Robert Caro book. Until the book came out, I feel like pe- people's go-to conventional wisdom about Moses was not that he was a corrupt racist who made terrible decisions. And that's kind of our understanding of him now. Although all you have to do is, is walk around um, Stuyvesant Town or, I mean, walk around the Lower East Side or take the BQE anywhere – 
to feel, at least in, in contemporary terms, even leaving the racial aspect of it aside, that those both, I mean, the BQE did the same thing as the freeway in Detroit. It just went right through. Like it, it did, it did sort of what you're saying. It, it made chopped off a. It made streets that were two blocks apart seem ten miles apart. Um, and then, of course, Stuyvesant Town. It's funny the power of psychological distance. We all know that yeah. store is still a block away. It was there before they built the thing, but now it just feels like I have to go across this terrible freeway, and it is. It's like crossing a river. Uh, it's uh, a hell river, <laughs> a hell frogger river. Um, at the time of the new deal, um, when the Roosevelt administration was freeing up all this money for massive infrastructure projects, I'm listening because I love talking about the new deal. Oh boy. You know what we need is a new, new deal. In my opinion. <laughs> hey, all this, all this, what about ca- a green new deal. I'll take it. All this cash was available. And, uh, Robert Moses was the only person who had shovel-ready projects ready to go because he was a guy with one of these Old Testament visions. And he had a very clever thing he would do, which we still see today, where he would just tell legislators or or aldermen or whatever, alter people, that it would be, you know, this thing would cost one-tenth of the actual cost. And then the city's committed, and then it creeps up to $200 million when he said 20. But what are you going to do? We're already working on it. We can't stop. Sure. Um, So he was able to get a ton of federal money for massive road projects, uh, uh, Manhattan and Long Island. Um, but the, uh, the results were not what people expected. In 1936, Robert Moses unveiled these amazing new thoroughfares to Long Island, the Grand Central Expressway, the Interboro Expressway, the Laurelton Expressway. Um, 36? 1936, yeah. And there was, uh, you know, all talk about how we had solved Manhattan's traffic problems to Long Island for generations uh, we've got these three new wide expressways heading out into the hinterlands. And within three weeks, traffic returned to previous levels, Amazing. which surprised the hell out of a city that had just paid the equivalent of billions of our dollars for those new expressways. So by 1938, they're already building new expressways out to Long Island. It happened with bridges as well. In 1936, Robert Moses uh, opens the Triborough Bridge to relieve the terrible traffic on the Queensboro Bridge. It's a new way to get across the East River. And again, within, within a matter of weeks or months, traffic is back to uh, as bad as it was, not just on the old bridge, but on the new bridge as well. So bad that in 1940, they have to build the Bronx Whitestone Bridge to relieve traffic on the Queensboro and the Triborough. <laughs> and then within, uh, you know, within a matter of months, all three bridges are as bad as the one bridge used to be. Uh, the city is trying to figure out what's going on here. They've estimated that it, within one year, they managed to create 6 million new trips across the East River just by giving people more bridges to do it on. That's fantastic. It's fantastic if you want more trips across the East River. I mean, it's just a fantastic statistic. Oh. Fantastic statistic. That was... uh, What a wonderful uh, phrase. It really is nice. You know, in 1930, the population of... Or let's say 1940, the population of New York was 7.5 million. In 2010, it was only 1 million, or not even... One million more people. So, so we're looking. We're thinking of 1940 New York as being kind of a smaller town, but it's not. It's it already That's had interesting. It already had seven point five. We million can envision people. the density of of, and you know, a lot of that is you know, obviously the skyscrapers have gone up, but also people have moved out. Sure, there's been sprawl. proportionately, yeah. Um, and uh, we see this weird phenomenon. They called it traffic generation. And it's a, it's a phenomenon cities are starting to see time and again unexpectedly. You know, L.A. widens the 405. And All with, of a sudden. And within weeks, the new lanes are just as backed up as the old lanes. Uh, meet, the, meet the new traffic jam, same as the old traffic jam. Right. Boston does the big dig, and it's a boondoggle. But by the time it gets done, at least we've got these new lanes for the city. And then they're crammed. They get just as crammed. Have you been stuck in traffic in, uh, in the big dig? I haven't. The one time I've used it after flying in, it was after hours, so it was not so bad. What's, I've what's been it like? Stuck in traffic in the big dig. Why, do, why are they still calling it the big dig? Well, it's Doug. It no, it's it's, it's, it's just it's like there. it's like the Freedom Tower. They can call it whatever they want. It's always going to be the Freedom. Yeah, Tower. Yeah. Why did they decide it's one World Trade Center now? Because do they hate the Freedom? They do hate the Freedom. It's precisely why. Was it was it called French Tower before, and they had to change it to Freedom Tower? <laughs> no, I think maybe they thought that calling it the Freedom Tower was like taunting people oh. to try and fly planes into it. <laughs> right, <laughs> and so it was originally called "We Dare You to Fly <laughs> yeah. Planes into This tower, tower." Up yours. <laughs> 
Uh, no, the big dig is awful to be stuck in under under because you're because you're very conscious of it's like being stuck in the Hudson, uh, you know, stuck under the Hudson. Uh, Claustrophobic. Yeah, you just you're aware of there being a giant um, body of water over your head, and that's at least for me uh, uncomfortable. It's one thing to be speeding through there at, at uh, one o'clock in the morning at. It's, at 70 miles it's the an illusion hour. of safety that comes with speed. <laughs> yeah. If this starts to collapse, I'm going to zoom, zoom right ahead of the uh, of the of the wave of water like in a movie. But you're just sitting down there like choking on other people's exhaust. There's nowhere to run. I've got no options. I don't like it. This audiobook is terrible that I'm listening to. <laughs> Get me out of here. Yeah, so the you know the the thinking about traffic was always that it was just like a liquid. You just got to give it pipes to pour through and you right. can make the pipes bigger. What if it wasn't? What if it was a gas? Well, as we what know, what if it expanded to fill? Yeah, larger the pipe? pipes mean uh, more liquid. It's a uh, it's related to an economic phenomenon called induced demand, mm-hmm. and people are going to say, "Ken, you didn't mention induced demand until over half an hour into the show." But uh, people won't. But, but futurelings look, will. But look, <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> iguana iguana uh, squid hybrids <laughs> will complain. But look, we've been talking about induced demand the whole time. Did, yes. we, did we call it by its name? No. No. We're, but were you and I just BSing about our cats? No. We, we were, certainly were not. We were talking about induced demand. In, in, a, in a roundabout fashion. I, I just didn't know what the word was, and now, now we're there. It was not a roundabout fashion because we didn't discuss roundabouts, which are another European city planning initiative. But sure. A, a, a city planning initiative that is amazing, but in implementation in, uh, in Washington, you often see them with stop signs. <laughs> I love coming to a roundabout with stop signs. <laughs> I do too. Somebody just wanted to put uh, some flowers in the middle of this intersection, yeah. apparently, and that's fine. It's like, okay, stop signs. Also, Americans don't know how to use them. I so. always stop and applaud when I see a when I see a perfectly constructed <laughs> roundabout that somebody was like, no, we have to put a traffic light here. The, uh, the phenomenon of induced demand works like this. People want something only because it exists. People will want more of it if you give them more of it. Um, there's not a lot, I, I, you know, when you look in the research on induced demand, there's not a lot of goods that uh, economists apply it to. Hmm, interesting, because um, it seems like it would be applied broadly. Yeah, I mean, do, do people want coffee more if they see more Starbucks? Maybe, but there's not a lot of research on it. Let me ask you this. Did you ever want to go to a bar where you threw axes at a target? <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, you did. Yeah, Even the, before it was, it's invented. really the only thing I wanted. <laughs> Every time I walked into a bar, I thought, "Now this is fine. Sure. People are socializing. They're selling drinks. There's a jukebox. I'm into all of this." But right. where are the axes? <laughs> it smells like axe yes. over by that guy. <laughs> Ding. Well, I think economists would argue that maybe that's a case of latent demand. I see. That there was this untapped desire, clearly, because once they're there, people do it. Right. But I think this is a good example because, yeah, if you had polled this question, should bars have axes in 2005, you would have got 100% agreement that no, <laughs> bars should not have axe throwing for a variety of reasons. Sure, but now if you polled uh, people, uh, there'd be a certain percentage of, of, mm-hmm. of people, maybe a large percentage, that say, when does the axe throwing bar in my neighborhood open? Right. What, which nights of the week is there axe throwing and which nights are trivia? Because I want to be there on axe throwing night. But I do feel like induced demand applies to Starbuckses or Starbucks. Plural. If you if there's no if there's not a, if there's not thirty coffee shops in your neighborhood, you won't think of that as a as a coffee as a social signifier, right? But before as, as a there place was to meet and type. Before there was a Starbucks inside of a supermarket across the street from a freestanding Starbucks across the street from another Starbucks, I I don't think people needed that much coffee, and now they do. They really do. It was coffee was a liquid. No wait, coffee was a gas. Coffee was a we gas. We thought coffee was a liquid. In <laughs> they fact, expanded the, coffee, the, the pipe, and now aerosolized coffee is floating into our bodies. <laughs> I wish caffeinating our, our desire for more and more Starbucks. Uh, the you know latent demand means you know there was a pent up desire for a thing that didn't exist, and that that's easy to see. You know people maybe people did want a phone with a better camera, and that's why they get excited about the new iPhone. Right, it, it's something that people already wanted. Right. Um, People wanted a flight to a new location, and so the airline introduced it. But, you know, with the new product can come advertising and awareness that build up. Maybe people didn't want to go to Belize, but now there's non-stops, and people will think, instead of Hawaii, what if I just go to Belize? I've seen billboards. Right. Um, I've seen fire. I've seen rain. <laughs> I've seen the following three things. First, fire. Second, rain. Third, billboards about Belize. 
the only other area I've seen research on induced demand applied to is insurance, especially in our time now that we're talking about applying health insurance to broader groups of people, making it more broadly available, perhaps on, on a, in a public scale. One of the worries you hear is that, well, if people have better insurance, guess what? Sure, they're going to use They're going to use it. Sure, they're going to be out they, getting prescriptions. They've got, they've got a cough. They've got a sore knee. They're going to go to a doctor. Right. And on, on certain media outlets, this is a boogeyman. Damn them. Can you imagine the effrontery of them to go see medical care when they have health problems? Although there is a small a small uh, percentage of malingerers. Sure, I was thinking about that. Like, and I'm sure nationalized health systems have to deal with a small percentage of hypochondriac hy- right. hypochondriacs hypochondriacs. But it should be hyper. They want more chondria. Hyper hyper hypochondria. Whatever chondria is. Wait, what is what is the root of hypochondriac? Oh, this is interesting. This is more interesting than traffic to me. The whole show is going to be about this now. Chondros is from the Greek for cartilage. Yeah. So a hypochondriac, I guess theoretically, is someone who doesn't have enough cartilage. A hyperchondriac would have too much cartilage. Too much cartilage. Big, big earlobes. I guess I am big nose. hypochondriac because I've lost some cartilage in my left knee. So the derivation does not have to do with joint pain. The, the, I guess the Greeks said that the, your, your hypochondriacos was... Um, Actually a place. Yes, it was under your cartilage. It was your torso. It was bet- between the ribs and the navel. So your oh. your body cavity there. That's uh, one of your chi locations, right? Or isn't that uh, where you... Yeah, if you have too much cartilage, the chi can't get out. Right. Well, and that's also Who where moved you, put my your, chi? you put your sepico, uh, sepiku sword right in there. And it just kills your chi? Not sepico. Uh, <laughs> that you put was, your seiko watch. <laughs> your sepico was your... That was that great. Uh, he was that great detective in New yeah, York. Yeah, it's Al, Al Pacino with yeah. a beard. You put you put Sepico in you, and he uh, he roots out your police corruption. Um, it's not clear to me why the word hypochondriac means the area in your midsection. I do believe we should save this for a future uh, a future omnibus because I feel like a lot of futurelings may be entirely midsection. Right. right. So all their health problems are related to their hypochondriacos. That's right. Uh, well, so I guess all national health systems probably have to deal with, there's a tiny percentage of the population that wants to be at the doctor that will over seek help and you have to put regulation in place to account for that. But aside from that, it's not clear to me that people seeking medical care is the worst. More medical care would be awful for society. I guess that's the kind of thing that depends on ideology. I mean, and I wonder, I wonder if there is any induced demands as a result of opening more doctors opening more doctors offices or opening more access to doctors it appears to me that there is you you know if if you if you think a lot about the the broad variety of medical options open to you and maybe you could argue that's latent demand i don't like going to the doctor i don't like talking to doctors i don't like sharing an elevator with a doctor the problem is not just that they're boring Yes. And talk about golf although they are they are boring they also are bad at making eye contact and uh, and they're too abrupt, I think. Doctors. So on a relationship basis, you're unhappy. It has nothing to do with your own health or mortality. Right. Because that's my problem. I don't want to go to the doctor because what if they tell me um, I have to eat more oat bran or I need to start taking pills three times a week or uh, something bad is happening I don't to like talking to doctors because I want a Porsche 911 and can't afford one. And so I don't want to talk to them about their Porsche 911s that I'm convinced they don't appreciate. <laughs> that you're paying for. <laughs> uh, so, but aside from insurance, aside from health insurance, you know, traffic demand is the big area where induced demand comes into play because cities are starting to see this more. Cities were not planning around the idea that they could not solve problems with more lanes. It's, it's, it's so counterintuitive that like a lot of counterintuitive things, it, 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 your your mind resists it even even after a thousand reports and and all the statistics reveal the truth you still kind of want the streets to be wider and if you're in a municipal position you know that that's your main your main weapon is throughput well right. how do you solve these problems if not for that in in uh, from 2008 to 2011 i think i believe houston built the kt freeway it's kind of a new beltway it's 26 lanes wide Whoa. with an asterisk. You, you, have to count, you have to count four lanes of frontage roads on each side right. to get to that number. And that's a, but if you that's do so, a weird it's, Texas thing. The freeway is wider than by, it is long. By, <laughs> but, well, it's got giant frontage roads on either side. Yeah. And I guess that's meant to keep traffic flowing. But in Austin, 
the giant frontage roads don't keep the main freeway from also being clogged and stopped all the time. Even frontage road, I believe, is a regional term, and maybe that's not what they would call them in Texas. In, um, in Alaska, the frontage roads are actually often called frontage road. <laughs> like that's the name. <laughs> it is the name. I think it's like that in Utah as well. But you know, back east, I'm looking at a at a at a, at a word at a regionalism dialect map. Um, they're called access roads in much of Texas and also the Deep South. Hmm. They're called feeder roads in scattered areas around Houston. So maybe these would be feeder roads. Feeder roads. Uh, there's service roads. Service roads is the most popular term. That's uh, Rust Belt up into New England, pretty much the whole eastern seaboard, Florida, Louisiana. I feel into like Louisiana. service road is like uh, – Do you like think it's different res- than a front road? I think road? of it as a restricted access road. It's a service road, like the kind of road that goes around an airport, but inside the fence, not outside the fence. I like on these surveys where one of them is, I've never heard of this concept. Because you have to wonder who those people are who are like, I don't say drinking fountain or bubbler. I'm going to check. I've never heard of this concept. I think that's the same people that don't know who they're going to vote for until election day. <laughs> I vote no to all of these options. I'm a Seattle voter. Anyway, Houston spent $2.8 billion on, on this massive uh project 26 lane freeway (laughs) if you count the frontage road it is the widest freeway in north america here here and uh as a result of all these new lanes uh commute times are now 55 percent longer (laughs) what than they were really yeah uh wow and you know methodology is a problem here because as you're saying, cities are growing. The reason why they're building these new roads is because there's new growth, there's new development. Right. But there's a feedback loop there too where the new lanes lead to new development whether you want it or not. Um, but some there's now been a lot of research into this and some of the studies show there's almost perfect elasticity. If you add a certain amount of car lane, uh, you will add a certain amount of car lane usage and it's in some of these studies, it's about one-to-one. Like you can... You, you, you know how much new usage you're going to be adding because stuff's just going to keep running at capacity. There's now, a new good, and it's a free good. Now, in contrast to the city of New York, which has only grown uh, about 1 million people from 1940 to, 19, or to 2010, the population of the United States in 1940 was 132 million, and the population today is 330 million. That's, that's, so uh, it's trebled. And we're speaking to people for whom it's probably, probably 65. 100 billion trillion. Oh, really? Or you think 65 million because, no, no, I think uh, 60, because of the great dial? No, I think 65 people. Oh, <laughs> like 65. 65 inhabitants yeah, they're, or people? Yeah, they're, they're the survivors. Not I a lot see. of traffic problems except for the abandoned cars sitting on the freeways right. when the zombies right, came. That you can siphon gas from in order to... Uh, sure, in order to, to power your generator to <laughs> desalinate your water. <laughs> but that's extraordinary. And it all is. that growth growth has, has presumably happened, well, it didn't happen in New York, so it happened in the West, right? And a place like Houston in 1940 was just a, a couple of tumbleweeds and a, and like a dry goods store and, and a mission. A guy chewing on a, a piece of grass uh, in yeah. a rocking chair That's and maybe right. a Spanish guy in a serape. <laughs> That's right. Selling uh, tamales. And they had and they had a messed up relationship, those two <laughs> yeah, guys. Those two. But it was a love relationship. <laughs> they, they didn't know how to say that they loved each other. But it, now Houston is in the top five largest cities in the country. I think it might be number four, yeah. yeah. And that's an impo- almost impossible planning problem. Uh, I think city planners are now getting used to the idea that you cannot plan more than a decade in advance. Like you just... Long-term planning can't exist because the problems are too complex and chaotic and unforeseeable. Which is which is also a huge problem because most of these infrastructural uh, improvements need about a ten-year lead time. Like Seattle, right now, all of the problems we have right now could have been addressed by good planning ten years ago. Mm-hmm. And the planning that we were doing ten years ago was trying to fight a problem that was already ten years old. And now we're starting to build the thing that would have made Seattle inhabitable 10 years ago, but it's no longer. I mean, are you I, talking I, about light rail? And- I, I wish induced demand was uh, also um, applicable in light rail terms because our light rail ridership is growing, but not exponentially. Um, the trains are fuller. 
the debate about light rail is pretty relevant here because you're starting to see in our era, you're starting to see pushback on the idea of induced demand. What was once counterintuitive is now becoming well enough known that if it's not affecting policy yet, it's at least starting to come up at the meetings. Right. It's coming up in the committees. There's always some pencil head that's yeah. waving some papers in the air and talking I about just read, have you seen this article on Crosscut? You know, there's, there's, there's going to, it's, it's getting widespread enough through kind of the, the, the techie uh, internet set. Again, again, futurelings uh, who live in Tasmania are like crosscut. <laughs> that that's, a, that's a local <laughs> blog about municipal issues. It's a issues. local urbanist blog, <laughs> as I'm sure you all know. <laughs> but, you know, or wired or whatever, you right. know, like people are kind of aware now that there's this weird counterintuitive thing with traffic and possibly it's been oversold a little and you're getting a lot of pushback from say the Cato Institute <laughs> or Reason Magazine. You know, sure, sure, sure. a lot of these libertarian eggheads are saying, well, this argument's terrible because uh, it's going to be used to build big light rail boondoggles. We right. got to, we got to <laughs> kneecap this while we can. Here's Nicholas Cage, whose hair is a bird. <laughs> Your argument is invalid. <laughs> so, so their objections are sometimes they're just methodological. Like, you know, this research is incomplete. Right. Sure. This was awful in Houston, but maybe it worked in Dallas, you know, or uh, this only looked at interstates. If you also look at state highways, you know, this kind of ticky tack fouls. Um, but, but is there, are there examples? of light rail uh i mean obviously light rail is a boondoggle no matter where, where you build it but it's expensive but does it um does it not pay so does it not induce demand the the pro i think light rail i think light rail induces demand it, i know it, but you're a seattle it, hippie in salt lake city uh in the 90s they built a they built the beginnings they built the backbone of a pretty nice light rail grid and no one wanted it right everybody talked about what an awful idea this was and only this out of touch uh, liberal city government could get away with this in in you know common sense Utah that knows better <laughs> right the famous liberal government of Salt Lake it it is the it's a loophole in the Jello Belt I guess oh, right. or the whatever that's not the right expression the buckle <laughs> what do they say about Austin it's the it's the loophole in the Bible Belt is uh, that the right bu- the buckle of the I mean, buckle of the Bible Belt is uh, much that would be that more would, fun to that say. That would imply it was the center, though. Oh, that it would be the saying. bulwark of it. Right. You know, that the would bu- be the bulwark buckle of the Bible Belt. <laughs> I feel like there's no, tr- there shouldn't be any traffic in Salt Lake because the streets are all one mile across, and no one lives there. Thank you, Brigham Young, for <laughs> making sure that a covered wagon could turn around at any point <laughs> <laughs> at the intersection of First Avenue, First Avenue, and First Avenue. The next block, the next crosswalk, will be one mile that way because all. All the city blocks are going to be the size of a sugar beet field. For any futureling that hasn't been to Salt Lake, it is really a sight to behold. Uh, there are uh, traffic issues in Salt Lake. Uh, congestion is beginning. And so in the 90s, this seemed like a terrible idea to start putting to in trains. light rail. Um but there you're kind of, you know, you've got Mormon conservatism working against Mormon industriousness. Like, right. hey, you know, here's something else we can do to make this uninhabitable place we found, like Space Age. <laughs> we'll have trains. And so do they have, like, broom fights? I mean, how do they, how do they resolve those issues? They hit each other with the with, with – the, with rascal sticks? No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everybody gets out their rascal beater. No, the thing about Salt Lake is it actually is, like, this incredibly – liberal island right. um, that takes pride on how about its you know its great lgbt culture and so forth because- i should say that salt lake has an extremely progressive homeless housing program yes they they, they were just, they built houses for yeah, them they because were land the, is cheap the first places to have a um housing have first a, a housing first model yeah and it worked there um yeah. in in places where building new housing is cost prohibitive it's trickier but right. anywho that's a different boring omnibus. Uh, we're, we're doing this boring omnibus, John. <laughs> so they put in the light rail, and it, it, I think there was induced demand. People were like, this is a train. This is cool. Right. Uh, the ridership immediately outstripped projections, and now it's a beloved city symbol. It's been expanded to the airport ahead of schedule. It's been expanded to the university ahead of schedule. The extensions have been built all the way down to the county north of it and the county south of it. So that's so what there's you regional hope. heavy rail, essentially. And the and the the uh, one of my big uh, uh, platforms in 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 advocating for light rail was that rail is cool. People don't like taking the bus, but they love taking the train. Unfortunately, Seattle only has one light rail line. 
And currently it, still a backbone like Salt Lake City in 1997. And it takes 55 minutes to go from the airport to downtown. So it's so you really have to commit to... They built it at grade through the poor parts of town yeah, because then, they could get away with it. And now they're building it in tunnels through, in the, the, through the nice white part of town. Through the white part of town, yeah. right? Some things never change, Robert Moses. The, uh, you know, the heart of the libertarian objections to the con- new conventional wisdom on induced demand... I think cannot be resolved by methodological issues because they are fundamentally philosophical. Uh-huh. You know, the, the libertarian take here would be, hey, sure, the lane, these new lanes are still crowded, but there's eight new lanes. That's more people out doing what they want to do. Yes. Um, you know, Independently making choices. Doing their business. Okay, maybe they're going to Costco three times a week instead of one. But that's, that's good. That's their right as Americans. Exactly. That's yeah. their God-given right. And that's that that drives the economy. You know, this... Um, this idea of a city as as a busy anthill, that still yes. seems very futuristic to us, you it know? Uh, that, but, but that's those, what we want. But those busy uh, metropoli all have, uh, have like, trains moving around in, like, sure. domed tracks. Like, Fritz Lang never had traffic on his, <laughs> no. on his weird elevated tunnels, right? They're all zoom, zoom. So on the one hand, you've got them saying, hey, this is clearly what the market wanted, therefore it's right. And right. if it gets crowded, that's also right. Right. <laughs> you know? Uh, there's an invisible hand making traffic, and you got to respect it. Well, so I don't want to introduce my dystopian philosophy into this already super- boring podcast (laughs) (laughs) we're really talking this up (laughs) but my uh but but uh you know i think you don't have to look very far into the future to see that these to see two things um self-driving vehicles and a a, a growing monopoly on control over self-driving vehicles because self-driving vehicles are i mean there's a reason that google apple uber uh that all these companies are are currently pouring a lot of resources into building a uh, the technology to have self-driving vehicles. They want to get there first. They want to get there first because there is the opportunity to have monopoly control. You think it'll basically be infrastructure. It'll be like it a, will. It'll be like a utility. But it will who, be- Who runs our self-driving cars? Privately owned utility, or privately owned companies that are using publicly funded roads for, but ha, but effectively having a monopoly over them. Mm-hmm. So if you can no longer drive into a city in your car, if your libertarianism is at least truncated- uh, when you get within a city limits, because you you can't have self driving cars and manually driven cars on the same roadways after a certain point, because the efficiency. If grandma is looking, it has her turn signal on and is driving around town. You know your your super fast robot cars can't. Um, ha- it's too expensive to deal with her. These systems can only pack them in if everybody's a robot, right? So, but once those robots start, if the if the local governments have not have not regulated access, then what you have is Google controlling or, or Uber controlling who has access to the roads, right? Or, or they could merge and form Goober. 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 Goober would control everything. But then they're going to say, if your credit rating is below 600, you don't get a car. And at that point, the only way you can move around a city is if there's a, a public transit network that shares this this burden. And of course, there's no right now, there's no plan in place to tax these private companies to pay for the roads that they're exploiting because it's not happening yet. But governments aren't thinking this far in advance. Ten years from now, we're building tunnels and whatnot and 26-lane freeways. Ten years from now, it's possible or within 20 years that the roads congestion, it's going to be a completely different equation that's dominated by this very small number of, of private contractors. And without some regulation, without some government oversight, a public option, if you will, right? Either both a public option and also some sense of some sense that these companies are are using doing what we want. They're doing what we want, but they're also exploiting um, our roads, right? uh, The the day that you have to park your car out in federal way because you can't drive it into town. And all you can do is either choose between a light rail that takes an hour and a half or get a hovercraft from Apple that will get you there in five minutes, but you need a 650 yeah. credit rating to ride. Sorry, Cato Institute. Like, <laughs> we're going to have to regulate these things. Like, once these are yeah. effectively the only way of moving around. Be- because it requires a, a, a system, right? You can't, you can't, it has to be an integrated system. Well, I mean, even in our time, you know, the, the arguments around induced demand say that a greater good than the market is being served. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the market is not aware of things that cities, in fact, the market is running counter to things that cities will want 
on the larger scale. They'll want to reduce sprawl for environmental reasons. They'll want to, you know, they want to reduce pollution. They want to reduce reliance on fossil fuels. What, What if electric cars don't? pan out, you know, profit is not the only factor, right? And convenience is not the only factor, you know, like cities may not want to develop a certain place where people would want to drive if there was a Costco, you know, right. Um, there may be, well, that's the so, land so use the, argument, right? That, yeah. that we don't lose all the farms right around a city just because people want to build big developments there. So the question becomes, you know, do you trust these technocrats to make the right planning decisions. And I do. I've always been a... I know you do. I, you know, I was always sitting in the front row in elementary school, wait, raising my hand first, <laughs> uh, making sure all the rules got enforced at re- uh, recess. You know, I what? like to be told what to do by the smarts. One, one, of the things that, one of the things about old school liberalism is that you do fundamentally believe that people that go into public service are people of goodwill. Mm-hmm. Now that isn't maybe necessarily... Tr- ever been true or or <laughs> certainly the, isn't true now. It's the charade that the whole thing runs on though. But I know a lot of people in public service and almost to the to the person, I believe they're people of goodwill who have dedicated themselves to um to the public good. And so I still do believe that a technocrat who's working in a in a um you know in public planning isn't is not there for money. And I don't think they're there because they're power mad or ideological even. But I thought you'd be the rebel. Like I thought – so you don't feel like your, uh, you know, your, your rebellious rock and roll character makes you uh, I'll do what I want. The oh. market is right libertarian. Oh, no. But I am a rebel in the sense that when you build your super system, I'm still going to drive my 72 Corvette with no mufflers <laughs> right into the heart of it. Park on the sidewalk and go in to get a coffee. No. Goober's going to shut you down immediately. <laughs> Let him try. And that concludes Induced Demand, entry 637.EZ1704, certificate number 38938 in the Omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Google, and Uber are archived at at Omnibus Project. Do you have a... Do you have an account on Uber's social media platform? <laughs> Our credit ratings were 794 <laughs> and 822. All our Venmo <laughs> transactions are archived as well with their concomitant emojis. <laughs> at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. Uh, I just recently connected my Instagram uh, to my Twitter with... Uh, now you have Twinstagram. With If This Then That, the program that allows my... Twitter feed to show my Instagram previews so you don't have to click the link. So I saw this before. You were just doing this uh, manually the whole time? Yeah, I was, I was doing it manually, but of course all it did was show the show the link, and half the people don't want to follow a link to a different platform. I never did. Yeah. I, well, thanks, man. <laughs> you know, what, all my best content. I had to go to Instagram separately to look at your content, and, yeah. it, and it hurt physically. Yeah, I know, because you don't post there. I used to have my Facebook and Twitter linked, where everything I put on my Twitter would go on Facebook. I did too. And then I was told, don't do that. You're annoying people <laughs> like that's not what, that's not what people want on facebook <laughs> yeah but the problem is i don't post on facebook anymore so all those people are over there yelling about uh, the economy and, Look, and talking about white about white nationalism you get all or nothing my tweets yeah. are a gas and they expand to fill any social media platform you can turn it on or you can turn it off at the faucet my tweets used to get a lot of facebook comments but i'm just off that platform now people still write me there stop doing that futurelings i'm not going to answer your your facebook message he didn't even see them um, you can email us, which is still the old fashioned way, um, uh, at the omnibus project at gmail.com, you know, crank up your old, your old, uh, coffee mill and email us at the Sy- omnibus project. Siphon gas out of the stalled cars <laughs> and get your old, uh, laptop running. If you like, uh, long podcasts about public planning. Are you going to recommend some more? (laughs) So public is so good. (laughs) Consider uh, uh, supporting our show at patreon.com slash omnibus project. If you believe that the market should, uh, should, uh, should dictate what, what uh, content is. Then don't donate for sure. No, do donate anyway. Shouldn't, shouldn't shouldn't the libertarian point of view here be that, uh, yeah, I'm saying go against your instincts and donate to, or go against your philosophy. Don't tell the Cato Institute what you're doing and be generous. Um, if your if your religion requires that you tithe, uh, patreon.com slash omnibus project will fulfill that requirement. 
It's uh, it's in the Bible. It's in the footnotes. So, yeah, that's right. 10% of your income can go to patreon.com slash project, and your local minister will support that decision. It is not, however, tax deductible. Sadly, no. I can't be jailed for tithing fraud, but I don't want to get in trouble for tax fraud. Uh, we we support your decision to use Facebook for one reason only, which is to go to the Omnibus Futurelings site and uh, and frolic with the other Futurelings. It is a frolicsome place. Can they gamble with an O? Yes, they can. Gamble. They, they can't gamble with an E. Although I wouldn't put it past them. Maybe. Uh, if you are inclined more to go to a place where people are wearing Guy Fox masks, uh, you can go to the Omnibus Reddit. Uh, and also you can mail us things, mail us your granddad's clothes. Ken doesn't like it. I just want your Jack Chick tracts. At P.O. Box 55744 Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our traffic problems survived. We assume the neutron pulse or whatever solved all of that at some point and we didn't have to worry about goober and the self-driving cars we're doing the neutron dance we now but if this catastrophe does not arrive Mm. which we hope and pray is the case Mm. uh then you should immediately move on to the next omnibus entry but if the worst comes soon this very recording as has been the case with all our recordings could be our final word to you what what a what a uh, exclamation point for the show that would be if we ended on induced demand of traffic lanes but if providence allows we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus travel to recover from heartbreak to trace your dna escape the internet on our podcast a way to go we've been exploring all the reasons we travel i'm gerilyn gerba i'm pavia rosati and together we're the founders of travel website fab and we've already heard so many great stories such as an actress in rural kenya explaining the ins and outs of safe sex a graffiti artist tagging the islands of southeast asia a producer arranging high fashion photo shoots in the desert listen to a way to go on the iHeartRadio app on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts 